Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Run Your Mouth podcast. We're here uh, in our usual time, Mondays at 11 a.m. with an OG Run Your Mouther, the guy who followed the original Summer Porch Store. It's nice to have you with us, Mr. Matt. Hey, Professor thanks. Wallace, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be disrespectful. No, you're good, man. Appreciate the uh, the invitation to come back and talk about energy. Hell yeah. I mean, you, th- this goes way back. Five years ago, you were the one guy who followed Porch Store uh, on its journey from uh, from Philadelphia to Max's house. And I encourage people to uh, this year, you know, we still haven't had that shakedown street scene yet of people trading grilled cheese for run your mouth tickets. Uh, but, you know, that's that still is the goal. Um, you're out in Texas. Are we finally going to be able to porch tour by you? Is this going to be the year? I'm ready, man. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm uh, pretty close to Corpus Christi. So any folks out in that area would be absolutely welcome to to come. I'm on beautiful little plot of land, five acres, no neighbors, uh, but I'm only like 10 minutes from downtown, uh, the downtown area where I live. So should be a really nice. How far is uh, like Corpus Christi relative to Dallas? I don't know Texas that well. So Dallas is up in the north. We're about right. six, six, seven hours from Dallas. Oh, so you guys are all the way south. Like, yeah, we're, uh, we're between Houston and Mexico on the coast. That's great because I, I actually I had a good time in Houston last year, which means we can easily uh, line that up. All right. So uh, before we get into it, uh, once again, to plug my uh, newest end of year thing is out. I think next week I'm going to be putting out the full audio for uh so basically I did clips. Some things just didn't work. You got to own up to it. But uh, one of the things that got cut, it actually got laughs, but it just it didn't flow. So I had to pull it out was I was joking that with the uh, transition to green energy and like, um, no, I was basically I did a whole segment on the border wall and that we've been spending 50 million dollars a year storing the border wall. And then I did a breakdown of the cost that like even Trump's thing was 20 million dollars a mile. And I was like, if you look at the cost of uh of just barbed wire fencing per mile. It's $45,000. You could actually buy five mansions and hire Mexicans. You could build a village for that cost for Mexicans to live there and guard the, bo- guard the border. Like I did the math. I don't know, by the way, I don't know that that's the best solution, but I was just like, this is government. This is how much money we just waste on things that makes no sense. And then I, you know, I, I, I basically said like, we're going to, they're already, it, does this make you feel good about the transition to green energy? They're already turning off the windmills. And then I doctored windmills in the ocean. I was like, that's where you're going to have your wall. And then this is what brings me to you is that when I was out in uh, Scotland, we were driving from Gla- maybe Glasgow or somewhere else from the airport. I was half asleep. I woke up and I just saw windmills as far as the eye could see. Endless windmills. And so I turned to the driver because here's the thing. As much as I, I, I bash on the green energy transition because I understand the way the failures of centralized government I'm not against new technology. Sometimes it starts sounding like you don't like technological developments or you're betting. Against. It's like, believe me, if the free market gets to windmills that work, it's going to be great. Or if we end up with green, like with electric vehicles that work well, that's going to be great, too. It's when government puts the force thing in that all of a sudden you end up with market failures. Anyways, I turn to the guy. And I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. Like, you got all these windmills. Is this like a win here? Like, do you, is this thing working? And he goes, no, it's too windy. <laughs> Which I was like, how does an engineer not sit down and just figure out that like there's be too much like the entire idea of wind is that if there's enough wind, we can harness the wind and get energy from it. But how can you not do the math on how fast these propellers are going relative to how much wind there is to make a faulty investment of putting up too many windmills that not only can you not use the energy from, but I I started because I was going to include this in the end of year thing. I was like, this is going to be for another time. But apparently they even 
then have storage problems with the energy on the windy days, and they have to then lose more money trying to figure out how to spend money to store the energy. So that's my long-winded introduction to hand this back over to you, uh, Professor Wallace, to let us know how, like, I, I guess I'm just fascinated by firstly, how do they get the engineering wrong to put up windmills where it's too windy? I would just think that that would be simple math to do up front. And then two, how do you, like, I, I don't understand, um, I, I guess the technical storage problems of the green energy and the wind energy where I guess it seems like with fuel, you just burn it and use it. Whereas with those things, you have to actually, I guess if it's an abundance, you have to actually store it because you can't actually, it's not like I'm just going, oh, I have to burn this amount of fuel to have this amount of electricity. It's coming in when it comes in. So I hand it back to you because I am fascinated by this. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, you know, being too windy, uh, certainly like during a storm or something like that, the wind turbines just aren't rated like, to spin that fast and generate that much electricity would burn out the components because it's spinning faster than it was designed. I mean, most of the time outside of like a hurricane or something, the windmills should be able to spin and take that wind and convert it into energy. But yeah, during like a big storm or something, they just got to like, basically like chop. So what went wrong in Scotland? They just, it's always too windy for windmills and they just realized to build hundreds of them. You know, I was looking into it. I wasn't exactly able to to see that specific point of like, hey, right. it's too windy every day where literally they can't spin. I don't know if that's the situation or not. But what I do know is that in Scot uh, in Scotland, particularly in like the the Orkney Islands and things like that, what they've done is they've installed more winds than they know they can use, and so essentially they have like, let's say you know, there's X number of houses and businesses and they're going to use so much energy. Well, they have more wind than there is demand. And the idea is that, okay, well, when it's really windy, we're going to have to like spill some of that energy, basically just waste it. Um, but on the days when it's only like half as windy, what well, we have, have, if we have twice as many windmills that we actually need, well, then we'll still be able to run mostly on wind power, even though it's not that windy on any particular day, that type of a thing. So they've done uh, basically the, the scheme is called flexible interconnection, where the idea is, hey, there's going to be times with these renewable resources where you just need to just just ramp them down or waste their energy because there's more of them than what there is demand. Why can't you get creative on wasting energy? Here's what I would do. I would do one of two things. One is I would buy a giant hologram that literally just dances when we have too much energy and it just lets people know we're producing too much energy. Maybe I would make it like one of the dancing bears from like the grateful dead logos, but like I would in the middle of town, there'd be a giant hologram and like, you know, I don't know, just people like just the dancing bear when there's too much energy or why not fire up the crypto? Uh, like why not have a, your crypto building and just whatever excess energy is running, just always filter it and just start mining just mine. Like why, I, I, if you're one of these islands, why wouldn't you just always literally just have a switch that goes excess energy, go run some algorithms, get me some Bitcoin. Yeah. And that's the thing. Um, you know, generally what you're seeing is, you know, cause Bitcoin is distributed around the world, the different nodes processing the whatever, um, you know, essentially the idea is go where energy is cheap so that you can produce Bitcoin at the least cost possible. Um, and so you see areas like the Pacific Northwest of the United States, which has like ample hydro resources, which is super cheap and all that stuff was built like a century ago. So like it's all paid for. It's all just really low cost energy. 
lots of Bitcoin mining happening there. Um, really, wherever there's like a glut of energy, that's certainly an opportunity for Bitcoin mining. I completely agree. All right. So I guess just to go back to uh, windmill failures. Um, so I, I know already in the United States, they've uh, unwound some of the projects uh, and it seems like they only worked at lower interest rates was I, I'm sure that there were overestimations in terms of uh, how well they would work. That's the nature of government projects and that they did somewhat depend on uh, lower interest rates, which is once again, the market failure of uh, the Fed stepping into the interest rate game that people can make massive faulty calculations, uh, you know, thinking, you know, because that it, it, it's tough to, to know where's the Fed going. And then I guess, you know, even some of the biggest corporations making multi-billion dollar estimates on what they need for the projects to be uh, profitable uh, can make faulty uh, predictions about what the interest rate's going to be. Um, so why don't we start with there? Because I know in New York, uh, there was like this big firm out in uh, Sweden or something that had big investments, I think, in New York and New Jersey that they're already walking away from. Um, but And I also believe that these firms walking away from their windmill projects already throw off like massive plans in terms of... Uh, you know, these states claiming that they're transitioning to like the net, the, the net zero, blah, 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 whatever, you know, horse shit they're pretending to be doing. Um, so I hand it back to you. What, what, what have been like the failures so far in terms of, you know, Biden's initiative of switching over to like the electric? Yeah, I mean, let me see. Am I sharing my screen? I don't uh, to... Not at the moment, but it should give you an option. And then I, I think uh, on StreamYard, I think on the bottom, it might give you an option to... Uh, present yeah it won't mm, let's see unfortunately it wants me to restart uh well hold the on. other option is if you want to just drop me an email with whatever uh you want to throw up i can easily put it up onto the screen cool i think of we probably could have facilitated that beforehand but you know yeah, this is this yeah, is yeah. run your mouth and all of its glory absolutely all right well that's fine i can speak to this um in the meantime i will shoot you over this email here. So yeah, essentially, you know, I, I looked into the issue um, of, you know, some of these wind projects failing and why is all of that occurring? Um, and, you know, I found some really interesting uh, information here that I'd like to share with you. And that's coming over in a slideshow in just a second here to your email. But in the meantime, I'll just keep talking to it. So essentially what we've got here is, uh, you know, an array of subsidies, right, that are essentially incentivizing this wind to be developed. So normally how energy works is there's a market. It's a state, typically a state-sanctioned market, or a few states will maybe gang together uh, and do like, you know, a, a multi-state sanctioned market. But, you know, this thing is essentially regulated by these uh, state governments with federal government oversight. Um, and the idea is to try to kind of like marketize energy back in the, you know, basically from like the mid 1900s um, up until just a few decades ago, the utility companies were generally seen as um, uh, like monopolies and they could build power plants. And uh, instead of like competing with each other, there was the states that essentially said, OK, um, uh, you know, we're we're going to protect you from any competition 
and we can get into this some other time. Uh, it would probably take, you know, a full episode, which I'm looking forward to doing with you at some point, how government screwed up energy. Um, but, you know, essentially these regulated utility companies that didn't have to compete with each other were building power plants and using those power plants to give people energy. Right. And so there was no competition there. The power plants were very, of course, expensive and not unreliable. Right. And all that kind of stuff. So back in the 90s, uh, you know, basically the federal government, along with the states, they said, OK, power can probably participate in a market. We probably don't need regulated power, um, you know, to make sure we have, you know, reliable energy. So what we're going to do is set up these energy markets. They're going to be overseen by the state. The rules will all be made by the state, but it'll be basically a market where there's auctions for different things that you need for reliable power, like capacity and energy and other services to try to balance the grid. Um, and that's essentially what we've been using uh, since the 90s. Um, and that works really good, except that you know the government at both the federal and the state level what they want to do is essentially pick technologies to win, right? They want wind and solar. Uh, they want more of it. You know, you see, for example, in New York State, they want 70% of all energy to be generated by wind, solar, and hydro by the year 2030. Um, and in these markets where you're paid based on your merit, whether or not you can run, how reliable you are, how much energy you can produce, things like that, um, wind and solar don't cut it, right? They're too expensive. They're not reliable enough. They just wouldn't be able to make enough money in the market to cover their costs of actually building the windmills and the solar plants. Next slide. So here you have just layer upon layer of subsidies um, to try to incentivize these technologies to be built. So on top of what wind and solar earns in the market, they also get the federal investment tax credit, the ITC, which was recently just goosed, like boosted by the Inflation Reduction Act, which kicked up, um, you know, the percentage of tax credits you can earn by building wind. Uh, you also have the production tax, tax credit at the federal level. So every, you know, megawatt hour of power that you generate as a windmill, uh, you also earn tax credits on top of that, again, on top of what you would earn in the market. Okay. I got a question for you. Sure urban windmills for poor communities or how do we scam this system for credits i'm not even kidding here how do i go into an area and partner with the uh with the poor community throw a windmill in the middle of town and then just start selling the credits to other people or here's another scam and this is going to bring me to my uh my carbon my my extremely carbon reducing trees which is the the, the scam i'm really working on but how do you go ahead and go and buy up old solar panels like i remember even being in israel 20 years ago everyone has a solar panel on their roof and i think they use it just for hot water but like there's got to be old solar panels that are basically just headed to the dump that didn't that, that are like past their shelf life like i don't know every 10 years you gotta get rid of your solar panels on the roof how do we start getting a credit for recycling those things for one and then just setting them up on giant fields where even if it, the, the the basically we sell the uh, the energy credits to you know the people who are just burn, burning coal, that's what we do. We partner with the coal people who need their clean energy credits, and so we go get all this uh, all the all these old garbage things. We get our recycling credits, and we put up these wind farms in urban communities, and uh, you know these solar panels that don't work, and we just we, we a carbon credit scheme. How do we do this? 
you know, I think there maybe is some room for that. Um, there's a there's a concept called community net metering. Where okay. The idea is you you build like a big you know solar farm or something in a town or wind or whatever, um, and then you can essentially like share the credits among people. Um, so it'd be kind of like signing them up for, hey, I want to come and put solar on your roof, and it's not going to cost you anything, and you know whatever that type of a deal. Um, and but instead of being on the roof, it's out in a field somewhere, and you can kind of share it. The thing with the tax credits, though, is they specifically, if I'm, if I'm correct here, they specifically say that the equipment must be new. So if you try to take use, uh, okay, doesn't qualify. Yeah, but that's come on. We just need a Jew to that we put new bolts on the thing. It's new. It's restored. There's a way to there. There's a way to work around that one. We we reprocessed it. We recoded it. It's new now. We put this new uh, algorithm into it to make it more efficient. And so it's new. Come on. You don't think we can get around that one? With I'm, I'm, I'm sick of being a sucker by the system. I'm looking at it and I'm realizing the only way to make money is to sell government things that they don't need because that's what they like. It's like my grandma was really stupid with money. She spent it all. Like we thought she was rich because of the way she spent money and then she passed away. There was nothing. She spent every last dime in a Tiffany store, but that's what she liked to do. She liked yeah. to she liked to spend her money. And so I'm looking at government and I realize that these guys are a bunch of bozos and they like spending money on things that don't work. So instead of complaining about it, why not provide them with things that don't work? Why not get in on this, Professor Wallace? All right. I, I'm, I'm derailing you. You're actually here. You're an expert in the field. You've put together your presentation. I'm a little hungover, so I'm just throwing out stupid thoughts. So, uh, yeah, all right. I, I appreciate it, man. No, this is fantastic. <laughs> Business ideas, man. We gotta we gotta figure out how to how to break away from the man here. So I love it. Exactly. So yeah, so you've got these, you know, layers of federal subsidies essentially incentivizing the wind and solar to be built because again, they can't really compete on their own in the markets. And then th that's still really not enough. So then on top of that, you have state level subsidies. Each state kind of does their own thing. So for New York State which of course is dear to your and I hearts here. Um, I grew up in New York and I know you lived in New York. Um, you've got the Green Bank, which is basically um, essentially like this private public sort of partnership kind of thing created by the state that says, hey, you know, we'll subsidize the interest rate. Like we'll give you lower than market rate of interest for loans on, uh, you know, new technologies, particularly wind and solar. And not only that, um, we'll basically be the backstop, like the co-signer on loans that otherwise no bank would ever actually give for these types of projects. So the, the state steps in, they'll say, hey, definitely give these loans out because we're backing them up and then we'll subsidize the interest rate so on top of that. The other move here, I'm yeah. just thinking Wall Street scams at this point. 2024 is the year that I get rich. I buy myself a van. I live on the road. I porch tour year round, right? So here's the other thing you do. You got to go big. You got to go really big and you got to sell these people on projects. It's a Wall Street scam. You ready? You sell these people on projects. You don't do the math. You know, they're not going to work. You build windmills in the ocean that you never turn on. And you know what you do? You pay yourself some fat bonuses off these loans that you're taking from the green bank. That's the scam. You get yourself a nice fat salary of a million dollars a year to, to go build windmills in the ocean and you never turn them on. You just scam the system. And then guess what? The government's in on this also because they need to pretend like they're going ahead with these green energy initiatives. So you come in there, suit and tie, 
You got to get some minorities involved. Maybe get a lady to pitch the project, show up in a nice power suit, attractive lady. And you, you, you just, you get them to sign off on it. And then when it never turns on five years later, they don't want to, they don't want to look like an asshole either. They approve the project. You know, I wonder if there isn't some of this going on, which, which we're going to oh, get into here. This is a hundred percent what's going on. <laughs> And, and then on top of that, also at the state level, you've got, you know, the clean energy standard, which is this program that says, OK, look, wind and solar, we know you need to earn more money than what the what you can earn on the market. So we'll make up that gap. If you need to earn, you know, twice as much, $40 a megawatt instead of 20. Sure. Well, we'll go ahead and kick that in and subsidize that at the tune of I mean, we're talking like tens of billions of dollars, like a decade um, so far in, in, in subsidies. You know, this is just. These are just fees, extra taxes, essentially added to the bills of New York State, you know, utility customers. All right. Here's I got another idea because I just, you know, I, I, I took my Zen and it's flowing. The universe has given me these ideas. Uh, I'm going to create a publicly traded company called uh, um, Government Credit Scam Corp. And we're going to get a room of Hasidic Jews and we'll, we'll live broadcast the room of Hasidic Jews so, like, you know, that they're working. And they spend all day pouring over the tax code and coming up with scams for how we can profit off of government credits without actually doing anything. And we'll 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 get the report out to the people of how many credits are going out annually from the federal government to subsidize projects that don't work. We can showcase how profitable government scam projects are and start giving the general public an opportunity. Usually this was closed off, right? You had to be in the BlackRock family. You had to be a major player in order to be able to profit off of government scams. But now we're going to open it up to the general retail investor. I love it. No, yeah. And then we can create more regulations to close those loopholes. Create can we make Tim Dillon our spokesperson? He, he's into the fake business thing. This I mean, could be this, uh this, this could be this could be next level fake business right here. <laughs> you could spend an entire career basically just exploiting <laughs> loopholes and then once those get closed, finding the new loopholes that get opened, regulation after regulation. Loophole no, loophole corporation of America. Absolutely. All right. So so in other words. Government steps in on the federal level. I think it was like one over like a trillion dollars that uh, Biden was uh, um, putting towards the green energy thing, which the smart entrepreneurs go, OK, look, here's an industry where I don't have to actually be competitive. The government's going to pour a trillion dollars into it. You get your market signal that uh, loans are going to be made available to you. You don't actually have to have a competitive product. So if you're a person looking to make money, that's when you grab your suitcase, you put on your suspenders and you get to work pitching things. Uh, so what we're looking at in front of us is basically the list of um, the different credits that currently exist for if you're trying to uh, create green energy pro pro projects. Do I have that right? Yeah, all the market distortions. Yep, exactly. And, okay. then if you, and then, you know, on the next slide here, there's a problem, right? So essentially what we're seeing is that on top of what you can earn in the market for selling energy and on top of that laundry list of subsidies from the state and federal government, these projects are still failing at an alarming rate. As you've seen, you had asked me to look into that. And so they are blaming inflation, right? And this is rich, right? So of course, <laughs> you've got the Federal Reserve with its money printing. I don't have to explain that to this audience. But then next, more recently, you have, ironically, right? The Inflation Reduction Act, right? You know, we're just dumping hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars out here on the market for all these you know, investments into causes that otherwise wouldn't be invested in. 
And the idea is that's going to reduce inflation. Of course, that's nonsense, right? And so the the what I've seen actually a few times mentioned is that due to the Inflation Reduction Act, there is, quote, a giant sucking sound of green energy investment going into the U.S. Um, and so the idea there is, OK, now you've got, you know, a trillion dollars worth of demand here in the U.S. for green energy projects. And so everything's getting bid up, right? The, the people that have the experience to build these projects, their rates are getting bid up. The actual blades for wind turbines getting bid up, you know, all the infrastructure type stuff's getting bid up. So, of course, supply and demand, when demand goes up and supply stays the same, oh, it's a while up, price goes up, man. That's that's price inflation, right? So the Inflation Reduction Act causing massive amounts of inflation so in just, the energy sector. Just to put this in terms that I can understand. It's kind of the argument for when they were going to do Obamacare. How are you going to increase demand and reduce prices? Or like you look at the college problem, the government made all this money available to colleges to make it more affordable to you. And so all of a sudden you got an increase in the money available to colleges. So they charge more. So on the same note, it, and this almost, uh, you know, this might be a question for Keith Weiner down the line, um, but like. I guess if government stepped in and instead of making money available to people who were going to go purchase the wind turbines and put up the wind turbines, government got into the, you know, made money available to the suppliers of those things to expand production, then I guess maybe government could reduce the cost of going out and investing in green energy projects. But if they're just making money available to you, and you got to look at this, like the way capital works, the amount of time that it probably takes me to make a wind turbine plant to make giant wind turbines available to the people that are going to go put it up, you're probably talking about maybe 10, 20 years. And this is so easy to forecast. It's so interesting when you break it down this way. Mm -hmm. Let's say there's two places in the world that make these wind turbines. And now I make more money available to entrepreneurs to go and purchase those wind turbines. Of course, that's not going to work because you're just going to be bidding up the cost on the wind turbines. The only way that you could possibly step into this market to distort it to it, it, you would have to figure out how do I increase supply on the massive capital goods, such as the wind turbines or uh, the mining materials. Like you're talking about the giant capital infrastructure projects to increase supply. It's fascinating. It's so simple when you look oh, at it that way. If you're yeah. increasing the demand for, for, for these items that, you know, maybe they can produce more of them in 10 or 12, like 10 years, if they started, you know, figuring out how to create giant, like it, it's almost like the same way Boeing can only roll out so many new airplanes in a year. You're talking about giant, like giant plants to build engines. Like these are not things that, you know, you can expand in six months. It's just not the way that th those markets work. You're talking about giant capital projects. So just to bring it back, I, you know, this is the way I learn and I appreciate it. So essentially they made more money available to go ahead and consume what are, you know, limited supply goods and will be limited supply goods. Because even if there's more money coming into the corporations that are making the giant windmills, it's going to be years before they can expand uh, production. And as there might not even be that many competitors on the giant items, why would they expand production? You're just giving them more free money. You're letting them charge more for the same thing. Why wouldn't they do more of that? It's the distortion of markets. It's so simple. And, and you know, of course, the, the, so the what is it? The solution to high prices is high prices, meaning, of course, that'll make, um, you know, supply increase over time because people are, you know, being able to get higher profit margins because everything's being bid up. But really, just, you know, boiling it down to what you said a few minutes ago, it's just, it's Ludwig von Mises's 
master builder analogy, right? Where you've got a, a builder building a house, he's got all the plans and he, he sees what the interest rate is. He sees what the available money is. And he says, okay, all the signals that I'm receiving says that I can build this project of this size on this timeline, right? But in reality, the bricks that you need for the house aren't actually there because you're getting these false signals, you're getting these artificially low interest rates, you're getting all of these subsidies that otherwise wouldn't be, you know, that isn't capital that would be coming into this project. But the, the federal government, state governments, they're diverting money that would have gone elsewhere and they're forcing it in here. And so the materials available for this master builder just aren't there, but he thinks they're there. And so he starts building these projects and then he realizes, oh, I don't have enough to build that third story or build the roof or whatever it is, right? This is a fundamental failure. Um, and then that's when you see the crash, right? The, the bubble inflating when they don't understand that there's actually the resources aren't available because the distortions and then the crash, the reckoning that happens after that to try to get the markets to actually clear, All which right. is what we're well, seeing here on the yeah. next slide. All right, before we get to the next slide, let's take a second and uh, just have an ADD moment here. First is I got Michael saying, finally caught it. I love that live run your mouths are like elusive, like the Loch Ness Monster, that there's all these consumers desperate for it. And I just somehow, you know, it's like a club with ropes around it. We make it seem more exclusive than it is. Uh, next is, uh, as we're uh, discussing market failures, sponsors do pay the bills around here. So I'm going to plug premierpharma.com. They are a company that is stepping into the healthcare market as uh, basically what happened. I, I, I did this recently on a runner mouth, but they capped what insurance companies can make by way of profit. So insurance companies went ahead and they bought all the auxiliary companies up so that they could you know, purchase things at higher prices and make bigger profits outside of your insurance. And so Premier Farm is stepping into the market to try and get you generic drugs for cheaper. If you're a doctor, a hospital, an independent pharmacy, you want to get cheaper generic drugs to your patients. Hit up the good people at premierpharma.com who can do that. Uh, one more plug is uh, we've got uh, end of year. We're doing a big New Year's show with Davey Smith. Make the trip. It's a nice little theater setting. It will sell out. It's a smaller uh, size venue than we normally play. It's going to be an exclusive evening, stand up live pod, and then partying afterwards. And then uh, before we uh, move on, Professor, any, any plugs you want to weasel in here? You can follow me on Twitter at As The Meter Turns. As, As the meter turns. There yeah. we go. All right. So yeah. next slide. All right. So here's the reckoning, right? So we've got essentially all of these developers, you know, chock full of all of these subsidies from the state and federal level, but then inflation hits them and they're like, oh, shoot, we're still going to lose money on these projects. Even with what we can earn in the market and all the subsidies, we're still going to lose money because this stuff is just that uneconomical. So developers of the wind projects uh, across New York state got together and they are petitioning the regulatory commission of the state of New York saying, Hey, kick in a few more billion dollars for us. And then we'll be able to get these projects built. Um, but they did uh, the, the utility uh, regulatory commission and their staff. Um, they did an analysis of this, of, of the extra subsidy that the industry is asking for. And if they were to grant it um, so that these projects can go forward, it would increase like your average residential customer or whatever. Um, it would increase their bills as high as like six or seven percent just to fund these additional projects. Right. Commercial or industrial customers, which often get the sort of the brunt of these like subsidy programs, their bills would go up by like up to 10 or 11 percent. 
um, just to fund these like these wind projects that are basically uh, at risk of failing due to you know inflation and not really being able to properly. And that assumes work. that once they get turned on, the electricity cost could be additionally higher. So like, it, for example, let's just say purchasing electricity costs from windmill are 3% higher than where I currently consume them from. So if you go the 6% upfront cost plus the 3% of what it costs once you're running it, now we're looking at 9%. And now if you, you mandate that there's a certain amount that I have to purchase from green energy, you're probably going to push up that cost even more. So now you're looking at, I don't know, 15% higher. And then, and then you you attack on inflation on top of that, just general inflation. You could be talking about you know your energy cost being twenty percent higher next year. Yeah, no, it really is staggering. I mean, if you um, like if you look at uh, you know, essentially the, the your bill right uh, that you pay, just breaking it down right, like eighty percent of that is infrastructure. That's power plants, that's wires, that's substations, that's all the metal and stuff in the ground that actually generates and delivers electricity to you. That's 80% of your bill. 20% of that is fuel. Right. And then if you think about it, like wind and solar, um, you know, they essentially just aren't reliable enough. Like we know that they don't work when you need them most, right? Which we'll get into in some later slides. But every Every additional piece of equipment that you throw out there on the grid, that just kicks your bill up higher and higher and higher, right? It just keeps making that infrastructure cost on your bill, just doubling, tripling, quadrupling, you know, whatever it is for all of these, these pet projects that just wouldn't exist. They just wouldn't exist without all of these subsidies. That's wild. You know, it's interesting. One thing I just want to note before we move on is um, yep. the, uh, one of the, the commissioners of the Public Service Commission... Um, she noted the level of relief being requested here in these petitions is jaw dropping. This is a moment for us to be more open and transparent on the real challenges ahead. You know, basically just to move forward with actually next slide. You can see them right here on the screen. Um, you know, one third of the onshore wind projects have been canceled. Um, the majority of the offshore wind projects are probably going to cancel, uh, given that the Public Utility Commission is not granting them these extra billions and dollars of subsidies. And you're talking about Empire Wind 1 and 2 over there, uh, just south of Long Island, Beacon Wind over uh, east of Long Island, along with Sunrise Wind. All of those projects are like, oh, shoot, we can't go forward. Um, and uh, yeah, that's... Uh, that's huge. I mean, that's that's a lot of projects uh, just all and, being canceled. And I, I guess this is what would be for the uh, investigative journalists. You know, hopefully we'll get there as run your mouth enterprises. But um, if you could look at how much money of this was already spent that will never be recouped and what kind of bonuses were paid to the individuals uh, in these corporations, what kind of tie ins they might even have with government or how much how much of these people's careers have been spent going, hey, you know, going with my idea of the uh, let's take advantage of this government credit scheme. Um, and then what are what are some of the costs down the line of having half built projects? Like, I would just think that there are environmental problems to, you know, already I was reading, you know, it's this funny thing with the with the windmills and that they're throwing off the uh, um, they're throwing off uh, like the, the whales or whatever. But you're also talking about um, you threw electrical wires into the ocean. So if you're telling me that you're I, and I don't know that we're at this level, I'm just talking as a theoretical. 
But if you go belly up on, let's say, a windmill that you're throwing into the ocean and you've half built the electrical wires and now you're not maintaining it, like what kind of environmental hazard might that look like in 50 or 100 years from now? Or like, what, what, what are we looking at from half built projects because you didn't think them through fully? And it's always in the name of the environment. But I'm just saying, if you're, if you're running with these half measures and you've got half built projects, I would love to see someone do the research of, Hey, here's what the, here's what the environmental cost might, might actually look like on these in a hundred years. Like, look at, look at, look at, look at what your failures are actually costing the environment. Yeah, I agree. And then if you look even on top of that, before you even put anything into the ground, wires or windmills or otherwise, I mean, you're generally looking at something somewhere around like a 10 year approval process to get the permits and all the local sign off. And, you know, these attorneys here and, and, the, and the groups that are basically like trying to push these projects forward, they generally have to work on them for a decade before they can even start building. You know, again, all that money just wasted. Um, but noble hours. All yeah. right, hold on. This is, uh, I'm loving this. I, I, I'm even surprised by how fascinated I am. I'm going to, I got to take a quick leak, which isn't professional, but you know, I, I have to. So maybe while I take a leak, you can, you can plug your, your Twitter. You can tell people other things that you've been doing. You can talk about how much you love your Kratoms. I know sometimes you're studying for drug tests. I don't know, whatever you get, the floor is yours. It's going to take a minute. So you got a whole minute of the run your mouth podcast solo. Enjoy it. You can trash the show, whatever you want to do. I'll be back in 60 seconds. Excellent. So I'd like to really encourage everyone to go out to the Run Your Mouth Summer Porch Tour, uh, which seems to be happening year round these days. It's a really good time. Uh, as Robbie said, I followed the tour that first big year that they went out. Um, really great time. Um, and uh, yeah, you just get to meet like minded people. And it's uh, it's fantastic. Robbie's got just a whole troop of top level comics from New York City that joins them. Uh, and they're just all murderers, man. They just get up there and tear it up. It's fantastic. Best time to be had. Plugging my own things. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at as the meter turns. I'm also working on a course that I'm going to make available for free, uh, probably sometime in the second half of 2024. Basically a master course on smart grid and renewable energy and the integration of all that. And uh, looking forward to launching that. Maybe Robbie would be so kind as to have me on sometime in later 2024 to feature the launch of my online university. Oh, hell yeah. Um, I'm there. I, I hope you just talked about something terrible and I just endorsed it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, next slide. Yeah. And these next few slides, I'm going to breeze through. They're, they're kind of technical, but I don't want to get bogged down into the weeds here. You know, essentially, uh, New York, basically, they have this goal, 70% of, of electricity should be generated by renewable energy sources by the year 2030. And so the idea here is we're going to subsidize these renewable energy pro projects. And at the same time, we're going to shut down the fossil fuel peaker plants that we rely on like in those early morning hours and evening hours when electricity demand is spiking, um, you know, you got to fire up these fast acting power plants to be able to like provide that power reliably. Um, and so that's basically their mix, right? It's subsidized renewable, shut down the peaker plants, and that's how we're going to get the 70 percent. Um, yeah, honestly, that's what, uh, you might as well call this plan rolling blackouts. Yes, that's exactly what I was about <laughs> to say. I mean, next slide, you know, we're looking at uh, for for New York State, um, you know, demand is like 32,000 megawatts. Um, you know, for reference, the biggest onshore windmill is like two megawatts. Um, 
offshore you can get them a couple megawatts bigger than that but you need some some wiggle room right in case something shuts down unexpectedly so you generally need about 40,000 megawatts of installed capacity uh next slide and so you know what we're looking at right now here's the generation mix where something like 60 percent of the energy is created by natural gas um, wind, solar, biomass, somewhere around 5%, hydros, maybe a quarter, nuclear is about a quarter. Um, and so essentially what they want to do is next slide, um, you know, take that 5% of wind, solar, biomass and make that grow by about, you know, to be 40% of the generation mix, which if you're looking at the screen, it's pretty drastic to go from just a tiny little slice of the pie to almost half um, of the generation mix when what we're looking at today is just trying to go from, you know, 5% to 6% or, or, you know, whatever, just a few percent more than what we're at today. And just, and uh, just to take a look at this, um, firstly, you know, I, I remember, and maybe this was even before Trump, but we were having a giant natural gas kind of expansion in this country, um, with the fracking. And, uh, from what I understand, I, I don't, I don't quite know why that so went belly up or seemingly went from us being this giant exporter and having all these resources to, um, I mean, it could be Saudi Arabia just started flooding the market at $1 energy. I don't know what happened there. Maybe you have more information, but it, it does kind of also come back to the, the old storyline of just that we don't expand nuclear capacity and that technology is better and could be better. Um, so I hand it back to you just to, you know, as I look at this and we're trying to, I guess, expand specifically the wind, solar and biomass, which seems to be the least reliable. Uh, whereas I guess if I was trying to pick the low hanging fruit, government stepping in, being concerned about carbon, I would think even though I'm sure you'd end up with market failures just the same and it wouldn't help because you're just making, you know, like we said before, you're going to drive up uh, the investment costs on the things that, you know, the, the on what's the higher capital goods that don't turn around that fast, like even the equipment, I guess, for, you know, doing my natural gas drilling. Um, but I, I guess how much more effective would it be if a uh, government was trying to do the natural gas or nuclear route as opposed to the wind and solar? I think way more effective, you know, which which we're going to get into here, um, just how ineffective these intermittent technologies can be in terms of providing reliable power. You know, it's it's sort of interesting, maybe almost kind of counterintuitive, but we actually are enjoying the benefits of the natural gas hydrofracking sort of boom, right? Um, indeed, the advent of hydrofracking essentially cut the cost of energy, electricity specifically, in half in the 90s and early 2000s. Like if you look at where the, the cost of energy was before hydrofracking, and then after hydrofracking, natural gas basically replaced, you know, it, it, before the mix was like half gas, half coal, pretty much all the coal has been retired. It's all been replaced with gas. So that's why, you know, right now, 60 percent of New York State's grid is powered by gas. It used and to by be the way, just as we're talking about just like economics, it's also a fascinating thing about um, inflation is that with like it, it, sometimes it's almost hard to track. Uh, how bad inflation is when you consider the fact that technological developments might have had drastic deflation. Like, in other words, if you cut the cost of energy literally in half, you could think about how much cheaper every single good should be able for me to purchase. And so, like, when you're, you know, tracking 2% inflation, that could actually be 10% inflation because you're wiping out all the technological gains of, uh, 
of what could have been cheaper because of uh, of uh, you know a massive technological development. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, we see that um, at some point we should get into a discussion on the Federal Reserve and you know getting off the gold standard in the '70s, but at the same time you had women coming into the workplace more and more. The worst comes ruin everything. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting. They essentially offset sort of you know your 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 co your cost um, your uh, standard of living. Right. Um, you know, by essentially uh, having having two, two incomes, incomes. right. Sort of mask the inflation. It's it's insane. The whole thing's crazy. OK. Uh, anything else to look at on the uh, 2030 versus today uh, um, goal no, slide? We, we can go on the next slide. And so, you know, here, essentially, the, the point that I'm trying to get at is, OK, so we need 40,000 megawatts of capacity to have a reliable grid. I, I gotta. Uh, I'm sorry. I, once again, I'm interrupting. Being a bad host for everyone who just listens to the show, which is uh, a considerable amount of the audience. If you're an engineer or you actually like math and you like uh, numbers, Professor Wallace did take the time to actually put together some of these calculations. This is not me just running my mouth and pulling out things from my butt. Uh, there's actual facts and figures here. So for people that might appreciate that, I do recommend. Uh, Specifically on this one, checking out the video version of the show, as you might find some of these slides uh, hold some very good information. Back to you, Professor Wallace. No, thank you. And, you know, a lot of this is back of the napkin. So, um, you know, just just keep it in mind here where it's, this is for the the Run Your Mouth podcast. I figure a little bit of disinformation is there you go. That's, there, that's the way we run over here. I like it. You know, essentially, though, back of the napkin kind of calculations, just round numbers, just trying to give you an order of magnitude of what we're looking at here. Right. So 40,000 megawatts of capacity, uh, we got to basically transform 40% of that mix, which is, um, you know, natural gas is about 60. We need to take about two thirds of that and get it away from gas and into wind and solar. 40% of the generation mix of New York State, we got to convert from gas to wind and solar to meet the goals. That's 70% renewable energy by 2030 goal. So, you know, you're looking at 16,000 megawatts of additional capacity that's going to need to be installed. Uh, again, one turbine is two megawatts, right? So you're looking at, you know, 10,000 turbines or something like that. But that's that's just scratching. The, that's like barely scratching the surface, because if you think about it, wind doesn't blow all the time and solar doesn't shine all the time, right? Solar, at least half the day, it's not shining. And then in New York, it's cloudy and snowy and whatever, all that kind of stuff. Panels get dirty. The sun's not always right high in the sky. Most of the year, it's pretty low. And so generation's pretty low, things like that. Um, so what they do is the New York ISO, they are the market operator for the state of New York for the power market. They say, okay, so wind... We can actually only really count on it about 14% of its nameplate capacity. So essentially, if you've got 100 megawatts worth of wind, we're going to count that as 14 megawatts, right? So only 14% of the capacity of this infrastructure is actually, um, you know, running at any given time. Like on average, only about 14% effective wind. Solar, only about 7% effective on average. That's basically what these numbers mean. And so if you were to take that 16,000 megawatts of capacity that we need to meet these goals and factor in, let's just use wind, let's just use that 14% um, uh, uh, derating factor, essentially. We're looking at 114 
thousand megawatts of renewable capacity that's needed. That is 10% of the surface area of the state of New York covered in windmills. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of why some of the offshore stuff is important because it's way out there and you can have these gigantic freaking windmill farms where no one can see them. And, you know, these giant turbines that are maybe four megawatts instead of two and whatever, there's, there's some efficiencies to be had there. But you are talking about an unfathomable amount of infrastructure that needs to be installed. It's and really do you have and so what would be like a I guess if you were to so I just to, I'm going to simplify this to make sure I had it right. If you're going with windmills, there's only about seven percent effectiveness, so you would need a massive capacity in order because you would need seven percent. In other words, seven percent of your windmills to uh, be able to. And, not exactly, but let's just keep it simple. Let's say I, I built a hundred windmills. I could assume that at any given point in time, seven of them are actually going to be working. Let's just go like keep it simple. For win. 14, 14, for fine. So I, I so yeah. for every and now so when I do the math of how much electricity I need, I need 14% of what I'm building to be able to cover a hundred percent of the electricity because that that's what it reduces to. So if I throw up a hundred windmills, I can then assume I have 14 at full capacity. Mm. And then is that enough electricity for my demand? And then I would assume that that's got to completely change the math equation for what that, what that, because I'm sure that they don't do the math that way. I'm sure that they look at it as I build a windmill and a hundred percent of whatever this windmill is supposed to do is actually getting pumped out. Now I do have a question for you. When you say 14%, is that because there's so much time that they just don't work and I can't store the energy? So like, even that's a mute point because like, you know, I, I guess when it's windy out, I can use a hundred percent of this electricity. It's just during all the other times I can't use it at all. And so it like it, even doing the math, like in other words, I can't even do the math of, Hey, I need 14% of this to do a hundred because it's like on a bad day, I'm not going to get anything from it. So exactly right. No, you're okay. exactly right. Yeah. You know, essentially it's like, yeah, I mean, when, when the wind is blowing really hard, that windmill is operating at a hundred percent of its capacity, but if right. the wind is only kind of breezy that day, then you're maybe 25 to 50% of its capacity. And if the wind's not blowing at all, you're sitting at 0%. How soon until they start uh, buying giant things to blow wind that they just <laughs> <laughs> that run off of fuel? <laughs> big, big fans running off a diesel generator to blow yeah. that windmill. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's actually funny. I am I recently just met a guy, and I didn't really get too many details on it, but he said he used to work on windmill farms. Right. What his job was was to install the diesel generator that would run when the wind wasn't blowing so that they could still meet their commitments for that project. Oh, there you go. They're literally, literally running <laughs> the exact scam. All right. Uh, next slide. Or are we still on this uh, one? Yeah, we can. Uh, we can. Uh, let's. Yeah. So another thing you would ask me to look into was some of the logistical challenges here around okay. you know, wind and solar and storage. So one more slide. Um, you know, essentially, this is a, a pretty famous slide. This is known as the California duck curve. And essentially what this shows for anyone just listening is that, you know, overnight demand for electricity is relatively low. And then in the morning, 6 a.m., you know, pre pre dawn hours, uh, you get a spike because everybody's waking up and using their hot water heaters and, you know, air conditioning and whatever, all that kind of stuff, coffee makers, toasters. And then during the middle of the day, if you follow that 2015 yellow line right there at the top of the graph, you see there's a bit of a trough 
um, in load through the middle of the day when you're kind of at work and, you know, you're not running your appliances and things like that. And then in the evening, right as the sun is setting, um, you have basically your peak demand, like the highest demand for the day occurs in the evening. So second highest peak demand is in the morning before the sun rises. And then the highest peak demand is in the evening just after the sun sets. And then again, you get that trough overnight. Um, and so what you're seeing is because of the policies in California, many of them we've already talked about with net metering and, you know, essentially all the subsidies to give these resources more money than they would otherwise be able to earn on the market, uh, as well as like the new building codes in California and things like that. I actually think I have a slide on this. Uh, yeah, next slide. Um, you know, essentially like net metering, what it says is, okay, you are a customer, you own a house or commercial building or something, you want to put solar on your roof. What we'll do is we'll take the average, you know, cost of solar, multiply that by roughly two or three, and then that's what we're going to pay you for the solar power that you generate. Doesn't matter when you generate it, doesn't matter what the price of power is when you're generating it. We're going to give you two to three times what the monthly average cost of solar is uh, for any, you know, solar electrons that you're generating. So two to three X kicker on top of the market price of power. You've got building codes that are requiring these developers to put solar on the roofs of every new building. Um, you've got the state sanctioned energy markets that basically say, hey, for gas plants and coal plants and nuclear plants, you need to be reliable. Right. And if you demonstrate that you are not producing when you said you would produce, uh, we're going to penalize you severely for that because we were relying on you for capacity for whatever reason you weren't able to deliver. So, you know, instead of giving you a payment for 100 percent of the capacity that you're providing, we're going to cut that down to 90 percent because, you know, you demonstrated that you weren't that reliable. Well, wind and solar, they don't get penalized that way. They can essentially just produce electricity whenever they want and get paid for it and don't get penalized for being intermittent at all. Again, the government picking technologies to succeed or fail. Um, and then, of course, energy storage is really still too expensive. If you were to try to go literally 100% renewable where you have no fossil fuel backup, then you would need tons of wind, tons of solar like we were just talking about. And then enough energy storage, for example, in the state of New York to last you weeks, right? Weeks of the dark gray, you know, sub-zero right. winters. So I got to ask, why is energy so tough? To, like, I would think like, you know, Duracell battery has been around a really long time. It works pretty well. I actually prefer, uh, I, I can tell you from uh, the production I do, uh, I prefer batteries to charging stuff because it just means before I'm filming, I throw fresh batteries and I know that I'm fresh, whereas... With charging, I got to be plugging in the hotel room and hope that you're actually at 100%. And eh, that's fucking ADD. No one cares about that. Anyways, I would just think, like, you can't round up every old Duracell, throw them into a thing, start run power into it, and, like, just be recharging Duracells. Like, why is batteries, why is uh, power storage that difficult? Um, You know, it's not that it's difficult. It's just that it's expensive for the materials. You know what I mean? Like one little AA battery is like a, a dollar, right? And it, it could it could run like something actually high power for like a second, right? Like think about how long your air conditioner would run on right. a AA battery. You're talking like a so. Few is seconds. it is is it all possible? And and I just talking out of my ass here. Is it almost like 
they're they're looking at the the wrong way where they almost need to start making consumer goods that have like rechargeable batteries in them that are almost like automatically recharging off the grid during like the time that the renewables are actually running. Like it's yeah. almost like it almost seems like an infrastructure problem that you're not going to build giant plants to kind of just store energy, but it could be that like I could have a smart air conditioning unit that automatically starts charging itself up when like, you know, the energy rates are at its cheapest, which are probably when the renewables are actually like, you know, uh, available to me. No, you know, it's interesting when you look at like handheld devices, like the new iPhone, for example, um, right. With the latest OS update, there's actually an option that says charge when grid is the greenest. Interesting. And it'll do that for you. But you know, go ahead. Okay. And no, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go for it. In terms of like your air conditioner or your hot water heater or things like that, the reason why that's tougher is because they just draw so much energy, right? Right. Like if you look at the average, like, you know, lithium battery for a residential kind of home type deal, it's, it's, it's a big old battery, you know, talking four feet tall, three feet wide, foot and a half thick, weighs 200, 300 pounds, something like that. That thing's only going to store, what, seven kilowatt hours, right? And so your air conditioner is, what, maybe 1,500 watts. So you could run your air conditioner for about 20 minutes. Right, right? literally oh. nothing. Oh. Um, okay, one more ADD question for you. So I know if I, like, throw solar up onto my onto my roof, I think the excess electricity I'm able to sell back to the grid, and I believe that uh, I think some people are even forced to purchase it. Now, when people are forced to purchase the excess power, if I'm selling excess power, that must mean that there's an abundance of excess power and it's kind of useless because there's nothing that anyone can do with it. When it's in abundance, it's not being stored. So it's literally like something that nobody wants. It's like, you know what I mean? You might as well you, you might as well go with my hologram idea of just turning on the giant hologram machine uh, to you know showcase that we have too much power today. Is that another... I would assume that that just overall must just drive up energy costs because if you're forcing, let's say your nuclear power plant to buy this excess energy. And so they just literally have to throw money down the drain for electricity that they don't want or need, then they're going to have to charge you more for your general electricity usage. So the entire green thing, it's just, in other words, it's just like a scheme to drive up energy, your energy price. You're, you're reading my mind here. Um, right. If you, if you go forward, I think two slides, um next one's just a duplicate yeah hit this one right here uh with the with the chart on it um back one i think oh yep that one right there so so what you're looking at here is a chart that basically looks a lot like the chart i just had up where you, you know in the morning you've got a peak in the evening you got a peak midday there's a trough that kind of thing um but the difference with this price this uh chart here is um the the vertical axis here is is price right? Demand for energy. What, what are people willing to pay for that energy? And it's interesting because most of the time energy is valuable, right? And if you are producing energy, then you can sell it and someone is actually willing to buy it. Um, but it's interesting because of the myriad of subsidies and, and market distortions that have been put in place by the uh, federal and state governments to encourage these intermittent technologies, what you end up having is so much solar that gets produced in the middle of the day 
that it actually makes the demand for energy go negative. It makes the price go negative. And there's a few really important implications here, right? So, um, you know, one is just the fact that uh, all of these building owners, right, all, that were essentially forced to put solar on or, or put solar on due to the sort of economic incentives and things like that because it worked out for them. Um, you know, what's occurring here is you have a glut of energy that gets produced in the middle of the day when it's really just not needed, right? There's, there's in general, a, a lower demand in the middle of the day for energy. And then on top of this lower, just naturally lower demand because people aren't using it, you also have a glut of power being put onto the system um, through, you know, net metering policy and, you know, tax credits and building codes and all that kind of stuff, you know, specifically talking about California here. And so in the middle of the day, during the summer, the price of energy in the state of California actually goes negative, right? And so what that means is the power plants that are participating in these markets, they have to essentially shut down in the middle of the day and then they can turn back on in the evening or overnight or whatever to produce power. But the biggest of those power plants, the nuclear plants, the coal plants, some of the gas plants, you can't just turn on and off on a dime like that. It's not a switch, right? We're talking about, you know, mach machines that weigh tons and tons that are spinning and creating all of this energy and all of this inertia. You can't just turn them on and off. You can't just ramp them up and down like the gas pedal and brake on your car. Um, you know, it would take 24 hours to shut a nuclear plant down, um, you know, to basically get it to go down to zero production or something like that, right? You can't just... So what you end up having is, you know, these big power plants that literally have to run. They have to run because during the evening, their power is going to be needed. Um, and in the middle of the day, when the price of power goes negative, when you actually have to pay the market to be producing power, you have no choice. Like you just literally have to produce power. You have no choice. And so to your point, that absolutely makes energy more expensive because yes, they're, they, you know, essentially these plants have to, uh, still there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right, I'm well, listening. Uh, yeah. So these plants essentially, um, have to pay to just be on in the middle of the day. Um, and then because of that, they then have to charge even more when they are producing, like in the evening and in the morning. Um, it just makes everything way more. Yeah, so in other words, windmills are just driving up your energy costs. And you know, I'm going to name the episode that windmills yeah. are driving up your energy costs. I, I think that's true. Yeah, um, because when they're creating electricity, there's too much of it, which then get, get, forces the energy company to purchase it and then charge you more for their electricity when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting, right? Last point on this, and then we can move on is, uh, you know, if you look at the solar power being produced, solar doesn't really participate on that market, right? Particularly like solar that's on your roof or in your yard or something like that. Solar doesn't participate in the market, rather partic participates in this like net energy metering policy, where like, it doesn't matter that most of the time you're producing solar, when power actually has a negative price, when you are literally making things worse, you're making things more expensive, you're producing electricity that no one wants, the utility companies of the state of California actually have to pay the utility companies of Nevada and Oregon to take the power. They're like, we have too much. I'm literally paying you to take this commodity that normally is very valuable. Um, 
And so all of that kind of gets worked into your bill. And then the solar plants that are really causing this problem um, don't participate in the market. Rather, what happens is you're a customer, you, you get a bill um, and you say, OK, you you exported, you know, a thousand kilowatt hours of, of solar electricity to the grid. What was the average price of power that month? Pretty expensive. OK, we're going to multiply that by two or three and we're going to cut you a check for all that power that you produce that literally had negative value. Um, it's, it's really wild. Uh, it's really dangerous, you know, in terms of blackouts, like people die for real when there's blackouts, especially when they occur during cold snaps and heat waves, things like that. Because you're messing up the math of running uh, traditional energy because if like uh, me, <laughs> if I have a power plant or you're at least you're fucking up the math of if people want to do big time capital projects of building traditional energy plants because they might have they they're forced to take on losses of purchasing uh energy that they have nothing that they can do with. It's just it's like it, I'm I'm trying to think it's like you're punishing the good thing with the thing that doesn't work. I I I've seen examples of this before. It's not coming to mind, but it drives me nuts. Like uh it, you know it, here's what comes to mind is in New York it's like everyone got so sick of what was going on with like the Metro North and otherwise that they started driving cars. So now they're going to tax you if like during peak hours, if you're in New York city in a car, because they want to basically force people back to the, um, to having to use the trains and the public transportation, all that stuff. But when I, when I go and use those things because I was forced to, because you took away my other option, those people, they don't have to make the trains better. It just you're, you're talking about now like I have to be on a more crowded train. Like, in other words, you're punishing the, the good technology by subsidizing the bad technology. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, it's interesting. Um, and then I think maybe the last example, I, we're already over an hour at this point, so um, we could probably call it here pretty soon. But, you know, the last thing just to sort of mention um, is, you know, sun doesn't shine when you need it right in the morning uh pre-dawn hours particularly during the winter you have a winter peak sun's not there evening um that's the traditional pre the peak right sun's not there and then we're talking about you know essentially electrifying everything right where anything that burns fossil fuels will replace it with stuff that just generates electricity without fuel um and then anything that doesn't use electricity like your furnace that maybe uses gas or oil or something we're going to put that on electricity. And so essentially what you're doing is like, just for example, in New York City, I've done some studies here that show that like, all right, the, the capacity of the New York City grid is X. And then if you want to electrify all your heating and everything like that, you're talking 2X that grid. And then if you want to electrify your transportation, you're literally going to have to triple, triple right. the size right. of the grid. I don't understand when they talk about the like I have an electric uh, oven here, which I'm fine with. I don't that doesn't bother me. But I also have electric heat. And I can tell you that electric heat is very expensive. Now, I, I don't know what a heating bill like. I remember at first. I hated New York City steam heat. I would just leave that off like that was it just it's the worst. I don't know what it does to my Junos. It, I, I don't like steam heat, but it was free. Um, and then I, I you know, I think my parents probably have gas or gas heat is my gas. So I don't know. I don't know what my cost here would be if I had gas heat as opposed to the electric heat, but I can tell you that if I, I first say I got a, uh, I'm mean, going to go to one bedroom apartment. This is not a big apartment. 
Um, and I tend not to run the heat at all, like literally at all. But I can tell you that in my one bedroom apartment, if I decided to run my heater, like let's say January is a cold month, 30 degrees, and I'm running this thing to be 70, that's probably a $350 bill. Like, so for all the, I, I don't know, for all their claims of like electric being better or more efficient, my interaction with it is that it's a lot more expensive. Yeah, a lot, you know, and the idea there is sort of one of the uh, assumptions that they build into that is essentially saying, okay, well, we would need to replace sort of the radiant baseboard, like resistive type heaters. It's basically a toaster, right? You turn it right. on, electricity runs through it, it gets hot. You would need to replace that with heat pumps. Um, so essentially you're talking about compressors with, you know, liquid coolant that runs through it and use the compressor to essentially exchange hot or cold with the outside air. Um, and so, you know, it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's a heat, like look up air source heat pumps. Um, that's essentially what they're looking at. You know, those little units that sometimes you see up by the roof, um, right. that type of thing or not by the roof, by the ceiling on the inside. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, all right, before we, well, actually, before I ask some more just random ADD questions, why don't uh, why don't you take the floor with uh, for any conclusions or otherwise? Sure, yeah, and then you know, wind kind of it infamously dies. The wind infamously dies during cold snaps and during heat waves. Like it's when just, you need it. when you need it most, man. And then again, the solar's not going to be there when you need it either. And it's like. I don't understand. I don't understand what they're trying to do here. And then, you know, it's interesting. I Right after you had reached out to me and asked me to do this show, I was already on my way to New York City to talk to some energy professionals out there. And, uh, you know, I was getting their take on this, trying to prepare some notes here for this interview. And, um, you know, essentially they were saying like, hey, we have the ears of the local and state politicians and we talk to them about this kind of stuff. And when we get into even... The the finest level of detail here, just just one layer down the surface and be like, hey, so by the way, there's some challenges here. They literally don't. This is like news to them. They're like AOC up there. We can go 100 percent wind and solar. It's a shame we haven't done it already when they don't even know how anything works. Um, and so I think that's really the driver for a lot of this bad policy. I think, you know, just one example to kind of leave it off with here would be the example of Germany, right? So this is back pre-Fukushima, you know, we're talking over 10 years ago here. The, the German government went all in on wind and solar, particularly on solar, and they added these, these fees to people's bills to collect money so that they can give that money to anyone that installs solar as a subsidy. Because again, you're not going to be able to make your money back just on the market. You need that government subsidy to make it worth your while to install this technology. So they in increased the price of everybody's bills um, and subsidized anyone that was installing solar and producing solar. And so they were like one of the first big countries to have like this boom in solar, like a significant percentage of their grid being solar. Um, and what you saw was the utility bills got so high that people switched from natural gas um, and electricity to heat their home um, and instead installed wood burning furnaces and started literally burning wood to heat their home because they couldn't afford the modern sources of energy, which 
Wood is a carbon neutral resource. So in terms of if you're counting CO2 molecules, it doesn't really matter. But what does matter is now you are combusting fuel in the city rather than out in the middle of nowhere where a power plant would normally be. And so a lot of that soot and stuff now comes back locally like you had you know, a century ago, that type of thing. And then not only that, but again, like we've been talking about this whole time, you still need 100% of the grid to be able to run on reliable sources of power. And so all of that infrastructure costs never went away, but rather you added a whole bunch of infrastructure costs for all of this wind and solar. Um, further, the wind and solar being intermittent, it makes you know the, the fossil plants run less efficient. So imagine your car Right. If you're on the highway on cruise control, just cruising 60 miles an hour, your cars are running really efficient. But if you're in the city slamming on the brakes, slamming on the gas, you're burning gas. You're you're not running as efficiently. You're creating a lot more pollution per mile than you would on the highway, just for an analogy. Right. And that's essentially what happens to the grid when you add these intermittent generators. Right. When you have this wind and solar that are on one minute and off the next. That means on your actual reliable plants, the ones you can control, you're hitting the gas and hitting the brake and hitting the gas and hitting the brake. And what you saw is after this boom of solar, after you know making everyone's bills so expensive that they had to start burning wood, that at the end of the day, the grid actually got dirtier because <laughs> the infrastructure that you need wasn't able to run efficiently. It wasn't able to run on on cruise and it was just a disaster absolute disaster a total to just a total over uh, overlooking of the uh of the logistics i think you might be uh freezing up on me a little bit there um all right so i do want to close uh with this firstly thank you so much this was fascinating i i, I the brain power of the run your mouth fans is fantastic between uh you and steven we could uh and dr krim we could change the world it's unbelievable uh the people listening to the show and what you guys know and you know i don't know maybe one day we'll have our utopia but uh uh you know this whole thing just to like you take a couple steps back firstly every all the changes that we're making are completely mute because none of the other countries are making these changes so it just doesn't matter another thing i'm very good with themes more than i am with the particulars but i remember once reading that um um like the marginal destructive uh, properties of carbon goes down the more it's emitted. So for people that are not like uh, um, familiar with the uh, concept of marginal utility, it's basically like the first piece of cake I have is delicious. The second one's pretty good. By the time I get to the third, probably doesn't bring me much joy. By the time I get to the fourth, I'm disgusted with cake. That's the, that's my my way of explaining marginal utility. The marginal utility of the first piece of cake is very high. And then as I continue to eat it, it goes down. So Apparently, carbon works the same way that it's like even if it has a destructive quality, it's like once you get above a certain threshold being released, it doesn't matter. Like the marginal destructive properties of it drop off like drastically. So like even any of the current reductions that we're doing in carbon might not even have an influence because like the only destructive carbon is kind of let's just say from zero to 100 tons. And then once you're over 100 tons, it actually just doesn't kind of matter. Um, and then. But all right, th this brings me to my one question. I was reading, uh, there's a great blog. I I'd like to have a guy on at some point. I read it, um, or I glance at his headlines most days, uh, this guy Mish Talk. And he was talking about, which I just thought this was so funny, because I love it Like when they just blow the logistics so bad. I don't know how true this was, but it just caught me because I thought it was funny. He was talking about how you know th th they're trying to put up like solar panels in the desert. 
and solar panels in the desert, I guess, you know, you get a lot of heat, you get a lot of sun and it's great because there's actually a problem that when they do that, they end up releasing stored carbon into the environment that I guess like in disturbing the sand or whatever, like, you know, the, the, the actual infrastructure is um, the stored carbon is more destructive than the offsetting of putting up uh, uh, the, the, and I, all right. Anyways, I've heard uh must talk about that. I guess in his, in his estimation, we could have, uh, you know, your solar panels and that could offset the electric grid. Is that, is he just being full of shit? Like, is that just a full of shit pie in the sky type talk or like, is there possibility for technological developments that we actually get there? It's possible, but it's not affordable. Right. And, and he'll, he admits to this when he's being honest, right. Where essentially he'll say, look, okay, we could go into Oklahoma we can install a bunch of solar all in one block, and then we can install some energy storage all in one block, and then we build transmission lines everywhere all across the U.S. to connect it all together. Um, that would cost, you know, your bill would have to go up by like 100x or something like that. Right. To for that. So not doable at this time. All right. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Love having uh, this was great. I loved it. So thank you. Uh, everyone be on the lookout for uh, more dates coming your way. Why don't you plug your Twitter handle once more? at as the meter turns uh also website as the meter turns.net um not much on there but again that's where i'll be launching my course later this year or later in 2024 um looking forward to maybe some future visits to um uh to pump that up so thanks robbie really appreciate it looking forward to summer porch tour 2024 here in sunny texas hell yeah all right let's uh call it